Hello and welcome to the world-famous Driving You Crazy podcast. This is the show where we talk about all things transportation, anything that gets you from here to there. I'm the traffic anchor and the transportation reporter for Denver 7 News, Jason Luber. And if you would like to contact me, you sure can. All my contact information is in the description of this fine, fine program. It's been... At least for me, maybe for you as well, it's been so less stressful lately filling up my car. We've seen a dramatic fall of gas prices over the past few weeks, and it got me thinking, why is it happening right now? Why does this fall seem so much maybe steeper than others, and how long will the gas prices stay this way? How long do we have to enjoy these lower prices. To give us some insight and predictions, I've invited David Holt, president of the Consumer Energy Alliance, to break it all down for us. David, thanks so much for being here on the world-famous Driving You Crazy podcast. Uh, appreciate it. Thanks for having me. All right. So in June, oil was around 70 bucks a barrel. Uh, three months later, it was back up to 90 uh, Now three months later, it's back down to around 70 What What's the reason, in your opinion, for for this dramatic rise and fall in the in the oil market and the gas prices over the last six months? You know, and it's 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 always interesting to kind of watch that dramatic rise and fall. Uh, a lot goes into it, as you know. You know, oil is a global commodity, so it's it's uh, traded and shipped and bought and sold all over the world, uh, and it really just depends on production, production output, uh, what the OPEC nations and Saudi Arabia are charging for a barrel of oil. Really dictates the market how much we're producing here at home. The more we produce here at home, helps lower our energy prices. Uh, United States is still, you know, the number one, sometimes number two consumer of oil in the world. Uh, China, the United States kind of jockey back and forth a little bit. Uh, and we've also become the number one producer of oil and natural gas. So provided we continue that trajectory and meet our energy needs here at home with clean, always environmentally more responsible oil and natural gas production, that really helps lower the price. So what we've seen now is is a little bit of demand decline that was kind of unexpected. It allowed the the, the stocks and the supply of oil to increase just a little bit. Uh, there was a little bit of kind of uncertainty of when, where things were going to go a little bit in the last, since October, really, with what's happening in the Middle East. Um, so that's all that has helped draw down the price of a barrel of oil, which leads to lower gasoline prices, lower diesel prices, and really lower prices for everything. Unfortunately, uh, we might be headed back to a situation where we're seeing more of an uptick on the price of oil. Um, the, what we're seeing, in, in, again, in the Middle East, we've seen some oil companies say, hey, they're going to suspend some oil tankers coming out of Middle Eastern supply. Uh, we've considered continued to see some upward pressure uh, from the Saudis and others wanting to, to charge more for that barrel of oil. Uh, we are seeing overall demand going up around the world and here in the United States just a little bit. So higher demand means we're traveling more, uh, using more energy, uh, and that puts upward pressure. So our prediction is right now maybe a short-term blip uh, of good news. Fill up your tanks now because they could be going up again pretty soon. Yeah, and it really helps the economy when diesel prices come down. They're, they're still higher than gas prices mm -hmm. overall by about a buck or so, but they are lower, and they do tend to follow the same price chart as, as gasoline for the most part, but there still is that gap, and, and, and it really does help when gas when diesel prices come down because you're putting it in trucks that are delivering stuff to all of us. You know, you're, you're spot on, and one of the big concerns at Consumer Energy Alliance we've had over the last couple of years is 
you know, one of the leading causes of inflation, which we're all struggling with right now, is, is high energy prices, in particular high oil prices, but also high electricity prices. So when, when energy prices are higher, the price to produce things goes up because of, you know, everything takes power. So that's electricity of some sort. And then when you're distributing it, as you said, when, high, when diesel prices are high, anything you buy in the grocery store, uh, clothing, lumber, household products. Uh, but, you know, those of us that shop every other week, we've really, for the last several years, watched the price of bread, the price of eggs, literally change before our very eyes. And that is in large part due to the price of farming has gone up. The price of diesel has gone up. Uh, so the price of every commodity uh, really that we touch and feel and use every day has really gone up. So that adds to that inflationary pressure that we've seen in the United States. So getting relief in diesel prices, which diesel is made from oil. Yeah. Um, so the more we're, we're producing, again, more oil here at home and, and finding ways to keep oil prices as low as possible is, is really the key. Because diesel, as I understand, and, and other petroleum uh, uh, derivatives go into fertilizers and go into obviously yep. the trucks that and the tractors that are uh, working the working the fields, and so all of oh. that does uh, affect the price of the the food that we're eating at the store. Absolutely. So natural gas is a is a product that is used to make fertilizer. Uh, just think of packaging. Uh -huh. You know, every plastic packaging that uh, it goes around your bread or the packaging that uh, you when you buy your eggs in the egg carton. All that is made from petroleum. All that is made from oil. So literally, every your, the buttons on your um, shirt, the buttons on your jacket, uh, my glasses. I mean, everything you think about it, shoes, rubber, all the component parts of cars, uh, be they electric vehicles or conventional vehicles, are made with natural gas or oil. So it's really ubiquitous. It hits all of us in all parts of our lives every day. And you know, despite the fact that we are using and producing energy more from wind and solar, which is a great thing, uh, we're still, the America demand is met, uh, about 82% of American demand today is met with oil and natural gas. So that's, that's only down a few percentage points. So the dominant form of energy in this country now and for the foreseeable future will be oil and natural gas. So finding ways to make sure that it's affordable Energy is affordable. Energy is reliable. We're not having blackouts. We're not having uh, lines at uh, gasoline stations and things like that when we have a gas shortage. Uh, and we're continuing to make it more environmentally responsible. Those are the three keys that we've got to do as a nation. And uh, public policy has a lot to do with that. And, and I want to talk more about some of the electricity prices and, and how that, that affects us uh, it just in just a few minutes, I'm speaking with David Holt, president of the Consumer Energy Alliance. You can find them at consumerenergyalliance.org. Do you think that the overall price of these goods, as we were just talking about a minute ago, with some of the lower gasoline slash diesel prices uh, that that uh, have come down, do you, do you think that we will be able to see some uh, decrease in the goods that we're buying every day? Uh, or do you think that we're just going to be locked into these prices and then the trucking companies and the other companies, the farmers, are just going to be able to s spend less on their fuel and be, maybe keep that more as a profit? You know, you, you hope prices come down a little bit or, you know, at minimum, they stop going up so fast so we can all catch up a little bit. It's It's been kind of a whirlwind for the last several years. So we need that relief. We need that pocketbook relief. So when you find ways to normalize 
and balance out that price of diesel, the price of gasoline, the price of electricity, we should start seeing some relief. Um, but you know, when you look at it from a global market standpoint, from the oil perspective, when you look at U.S. energy policy here at home, there's still a lot of upward pressure on that price of oil, which again then puts upward pressure on the price of gasoline and diesel, and then that therefore puts upward pressure on the price of everything. So um, we're as demand goes up, when we look at things going into the new year, you know, as the holiday season is upon us, hopefully we see lower prices for that holiday meal. Thanksgiving meals were all kind of a shocker for us all, but holiday uh, meal around this time of year, hopefully you see uh, better pricing. But as we move into the new year, we might see an uptick again. Yeah, because usually gas prices fall at this time of year with the demand. It's all after Labor Day. We see it typically decrease. And then in February, March, we start to see that demand increase again. And so do do you see the same pattern happening for 2024 where we're going to see maybe the increase here in that regular schedule at the uh, first part of the year? Uh, We do. We do. You know, and it's there's been. You know, some forecasters are looking at, are we, you know, still in kind of inflationary or sorry, recession pressure? uh, Is the is the economy expanding again, which we all want. Right. There's creating jobs. Uh, It's good for every family, every man, woman and child in the country. Uh, But when a recession ends and demand increases, then you're having that again, you're traveling more, you're using more energy. Uh, it puts a little bit of upward pressure on uh, the stocks, the supplies that we have that are readily available for oil, gasoline, diesel, other finished products, as you mentioned. Um, so when you're seeing demand go up, you're seeing the economy going again, then you're seeing a little bit of upward pressure on that price of oil here at home. Yeah. Uh, my guest is David Holt, president of the Consumer Energy Alliance. We're talking about oil prices, gas prices for the new year. And the price for electricity, as you mentioned it just a moment ago, to charge, uh, especially now, electric cars, it depends on where you're charging it, if you're different parts of the country have different electricity charges, uh, mm-hmm. whether you're charging it at home or charging at one of those uh, you know, supercharging stations, they can typically be a lot more money. Um, but it's generally depending on where you charge it, less than a gallon of gasoline right now to power a comparable ICE car. Do you see that saying the same or changing over the next few years and prices changing in the electricity market? You know, it's a little bit, as you said, it depends on the region. So there are a lot of regional um, electricity um, uh, regulatory bodies, Um, you know, in the East Coast, in the Northeast, uh, I'm calling you from, I'm in from Texas today. So we have a, a system called ERCOT, which is kind of a standalone system for just Texas. So these regulatory bodies kind of oversee what the grid is supposed to look like, what demand for electricity is supposed to look like over the next five, 10 years. And so some of the problems, some of the concerns we have, which could negatively impact the EV market, uh, one, some of the regulatory officials and some legislators in, in key states that are implementing EV mandates, if you will, um, they, 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 many of them aren't really fully considering, okay, we add all these EVs, what does that do to the grid? Mm-hmm. Can the current grid in this region of the country uh, meet this increased need? Where are these recharging stations, as you mentioned? Do we have enough of these recharging stations in this region to, to meet demand? Is that going to frustrate the EV market and consumers who purchase EVs? Uh, have we fully considered the cost of an EV? Because the average EV is about fifteen to seventeen thousand dollars more 
than the average ICE vehicle, internal combustion engine. Um, have we really fully thought out what folks that are living on fixed incomes are at or near the poverty level? What does that do to their pocketbook if we're mandating these EVs in the in future years? Uh, and then the last consideration that, that really is a, a struggle, I think, for all of us that we need to recognize, most of the component parts and the metals and the materials that go into making EVs are controlled by the Chinese. So they're either made in China or they're made in Africa, produced in Africa, mined in Africa, but under Chinese control. So a lot of the EV future, when you're buying a replacement battery for an EV, if you will, or a, a replacement part for an EV or even a new EV, yeah. a lot of that has come from China. So what are we doing in the United States to produce these critical minerals, these metals that we need for, for electric vehicles here at home? Uh, are, have we fully considered the national security implications of all that, the trade implications? Um, and um, are we having good conversations with the Chinese to make sure that market is steady, is reliable, and we don't have an unnecessary price increase? So those four considerations, we've talked to a lot of policymakers, state, local, national, around the country. And you know we need to go back and make sure that we really are fully considering them as we're looking at EV mandates in some areas or EV requirements in certain areas, because our concern is if we're failing to meet these considerations, if prices for electricity go up because of EVs, if you can't recharge in a timely fashion or in a convenient way, then consumers that have purchased these EVs, they may unnecessarily blame the EV. Yeah. And we, we certainly don't want, we want choice as consumers, and if you want to buy an EV, absolutely should buy an EV. If you want to continue to use an internal combustion engine, you absolutely should be able to do that as well. But let's find ways that we make it ever cleaner and continue to keep our environmental progress going. Yeah, I think you alluded to this a little bit because not every state is like California or here in Colorado where they're forcing residents to choose one form of propulsion in the next eight to 10 years. Uh, the yep. legislature in Ohio uh, just passed a bill saying that they are uh, they they will allow everybody to buy whatever kind of car that they want. Uh, do you think we're going to see more states go that way or go the way of Colorado, uh, California, and and only uh, say you're going to only be able to buy EVs or some kind of an electric car? You know, I actually I think it's going to be kind of a mix. Um, I think you're going to see a lot of the maybe the Midwest states. Uh, uh, other, you know, Texas, maybe one of uh, another one of those, Ohio, other states that will say we, we support consumer choice. Uh, we've already seen that in the natural gas market. So you've seen some states like California, New York, other states that have said, hey, we're moving and even Colorado, we're moving toward deselecting natural gas uh, in future construction or deselecting natural gases as part of the electricity mix of the future in a lot of these states. Other states have gone the opposite direction, saying we wanna make sure that uh, our electricity providers, our utilities, our consumers have energy choice. Uh, they, If they wanna choose wind, solar, hydro, nuclear is an option, natural gas is an option, uh, they continue to have that. So I think you're gonna see some pretty distinct policy differences among the states. And one of the things that, that we really continue to argue is that choice. Uh, for all the reasons I just mentioned with EV markets, uh, mandating things that restrict choice, particularly in a very tight time frame over the next eight, five, eight, 10 years, 
if the grid is not able to withstand that choice, then there's going to be implications. If we don't have enough from the electricity side, if we don't have enough, what we call permanent power, permanent power is, is kind of power that's always on. So when the wind's not blowing and the sun's not shining, what are we doing to meet our energy needs? Um, Do we have that permanent power that can be ramped up very quickly for those, those times when renewable power is not available and permanent power is really nuclear or natural gas. So are we, we building out enough permanent power, this baseload power is what the utilities call it, that we're able to back up wind and solar when it's not available. And, and we're really, really, we're not seeing enough of that in the, around the country, uh, particularly these states that look to kind of deselect natural gas that also aren't really fully considering nuclear as an option, which with these new small modular reactors that are much smaller that can power, you know, neighborhoods or sections of cities rather than full cities, but can be built quickly, are far safer than the older conventional uh, nuclear facilities. Um, So those considerations have to be part of our energy policy discussion, building out more transmission, building out more renewables, more wind and solar, Yes, make sure we have the backup with natural gas or nuclear. Yes, make sure that we have it all combined in an environmentally responsible way. Absolutely. But affordable energy, reliable energy, because if you're all in on wind and solar and the renewable power, for whatever reason, no sun, no wind is not working, then you're likely to have a blackout. So more reliable energy and then ever increasing inter- environmental, environmentally responsible energy. Those are three things we all have to do. Yeah, because the, you know, it, it really, it, it's no secret that the current administration would like to see oil and gas go away. Uh, but that would mean more things, including, I think you referenced this, our stoves would have to go out to electric and our lawnmowers and our water heaters and all kinds of things. And if that happens, our energy prices will change in dramatic ways where it's it's just going to be it's going to be tough to know how much you're going to pay from um, not just year to year month to month what you're going to pay for all of your stuff that you have to plug in uh, absolutely and, and and it's only going to change in one direction it's only going to go up yeah uh and last this past summer the summer of 2023 we saw i think 20 or 21 states uh warn their citizens, their families, that there could be a likely brownout or blackout at some point when they had a really hot weather day, an extreme weather day. Um, as we move forward here, the, the concern we have is when you have these extreme weather days, whether it's in summer or in winter, the likelihood for brownouts or blackouts is only going to increase uh, because we don't have that backup permanent power. We're not building out enough of that permanent power, which we have to do. Um, and if you have a if you're living in the northeast or in Colorado and you have an extreme weather event in the winter and you don't have the backup power, then you're getting yourself in a kind of a human risk standpoint. Um, uh, you well, know, you saw that you down in Texas with the huge ice storm that you yep. guys had down there and you rely on the uh, wind farms and they all froze up. They all froze up and we, we weren't able to get natural gas uh, on uh, you know, online in time. Uh-huh. Uh, so it was kind of that. Uh, you and, know, we're, no and we're helping to pay store. for it <laughs> here in Correct. Colorado. Correct. Yeah. Correct. So it's it's really sensible energy policy has to be the key. That's kind of our watchword. So it's, it's going to be a mix. It's going to be a balance. Um, those arguments that say the only way to meet our environmental goals is to outright ban 
oil or natural gas. I, 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 I firmly disagree. I don't believe that's true. Uh, we can continue to advance uh, toward uh, our environmental goals, our shared environmental goals, and show the United States as a leader while we continue to do oil and natural gas. Um, and we've we've already shown here in the United States that we are leaders. Uh, we're the leading country in CO2 reduction, as well as reduction in volatile organic compounds and nitrogen oxides, which create city smog. Uh, and all forms of emissions that come out of either the tailpipe type tailpipe, excuse me, or fossil energy of some sort. So while we continue to advance our environmental performance, we have to make sure that that energy is affordable um, and our policies aren't creating less reliable energy. And we need to recognize that, you know, raising energy prices, making energy less reliable really hurts those among us that are at that poverty level, that are in disadvantaged communities that can't afford to pay more for energy. Um, and we need to really kind of make sure that our energy policies fully consider those populations as well, because those are the folks that are when you have high milk prices that we talked about from diesel, uh, but you have high gasoline prices and high electricity prices. Those are the families that are choosing between a gallon of milk and a gallon of gasoline. Uh, and that's a that's not a choice we want to make anyone have to make. My guest is David Holt, president of the Consumer Energy Alliance. You can find them on the web at consumerenergyalliance.org. Electric cars are more of a thing for the developed world. There yep. will be places in the world, probably for decades, that will never, ever go electric. So oil really is a thing that's never going, going away, and we're going to have to use these fossil fuels. They'll technically really never, ever have to go away because we have... Uh, so much of Africa and India and China and the, and the rest of those those countries that rely on uh, non-electric vehicles and will for the foreseeable future. Yes, I, I, I fully agree. You know, and it there are things we can do with uh, some of the non-developed world and, and work with China and others. You know, I think that there's there there are energy resources, coal, fuel, oil, other things that are just higher emitter, higher emitting, and, and will be more and more difficult to, to get to the point where we can continue our environmental trajectory in a thoughtful way. Uh, and the Chinese are bringing on, you know, a lot of uh, utility sector power with coal. Um, if there's ways that we can export more natural gas from the United States to Asian markets, that will be a, a, a game changer because it will immediately reduce emissions. Uh, in Asian markets and help global environmental performance. So those are kind of some things we need to think about. But from a transport uh, sector perspective, you know, the EV market will be a continued area of growth um, in the developed world here in the United States and in Europe. Uh, but um, I, I think that the internal combustion engine, particularly long haul vehicles, uh, vehicles like trucks and others that really need a lot of power, uh, it's going to be very hard to replace those vehicles with uh, with electric vehicles. And, and I'm sure you've you've followed some of the decrease in the uh, used car market. Prices have been falling, and it's they've really been falling quite a bit for EVs as well. Do do you think uh, the it's not quite a crash yet, but the the fall in prices for EVs could help the overall price of energy, or or really have no effect at all? They're they're not really consuming that much juice. You know, it depends. I think the it's a little early to, to spot a trend. Um, you know, is this uh, the the consumer market speaking that that 
you know, EVs are are not the choice of the vast majority of folks in this country. Um, maybe that's a trend we need to kind of look at. I think some of the automakers are maybe starting to cry a little bit about that and and saying demand is just not there. Um, you know, we continue to buy more large vehicles in this country, that more internal combustion vehicles in this country. So I think we need to we need to look at what the market uh, is asking for, uh, and the market is asking for ever. Uh, ever-increasing environmental performance. Uh, that's clear. So let's let's meet that market demand. That let's meet that uh, moral obligation that we have uh, as a world leader here in the country, and and improve the environment for for all Americans and and around the globe. But let's also make sure that again, it's affordable, it's reliable, it's uh, meeting that consumer test, consumer acceptance. It's not frustrating uh, Americans that have to get back and forth to work or uh, somehow making life harder than it needs to be. Uh, that's that's really, you know, we need to balance all those policy goals. And sometimes these mandates don't quite fully consider, again, fully consider all the implications before they uh, they make some of these, you know, take some of these votes. Well, and I was just thinking about um, with oil and natural gas, uh, Propane is a derivative of this as well. Mm -hmm. And look how many things are, I mean, not just my patio heater, but the forklift that's at the local furniture store. I mean, there's so many things that are not really a lot of cars and trucks and that sort of thing. I guess there are a few, but I mean, propane, there's there's probably room for hydrogen. I know hydrogen it can be yep. created through electricity and then you, you can use it to create electricity. So, but I mean, there's all kinds of other different power sources. Absolutely. And hydrogen is one that a lot of, uh, a lot of folks are talking about and and that can be used in the transportation market yeah. it can be used in the electricity market it's got a lot of applications it could be transported via pipeline um so it, it makes it easy to distribute it around the country um so bringing more hydrogen to market uh all the while we're looking at carbon capture carbon sequestration technologies which are really rapidly uh not evolving the technology is not new but the market application has really started to take off. So you're looking at not only the oil and gas industry, looking at ways to reduce their carbon footprint, but all industry, whether it's the steel industry or the fertilizer industry or any manufacturer that out that's out there that is looking to improve their own personal environmental footprint by capturing those carbon emissions, other emissions, and then you know sequestering them underground uh, for a long period of time. So. The U.S. Environmental Protection Agency and under this administration is really pushing hard for this and expanding it uh, quite a bit. And the uh, Inflation Reduction Act that passed last year in Congress and was signed by the president really created that final, overcame that final hurdle that brought carbon capture sequestration to, to, to market. So we're seeing a lot of activity there, and that's going to be a great benefit while, you know, as we continue our industrial progress and creating jobs and creating opportunities in this country, we can also improve our environmental footprint. And uh, looking more long-term, as I'm speaking with David Holt, president of the Consumer Energy Alliance, not knowing exactly where we will be with how many EVs might be on the road and, and, and what happens with the presidential election coming up. Uh, can you see with your crystal ball uh, there in your office what gas or oil or electricity prices will look like in maybe five or 10 or even 15 years? Is that too far out? You know, it's it's it, it largely the 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 unknown there is going to be um, 
policy. You know, what what are our public officials in Washington and, and in the states going to do to add additional choice to our energy mix or restrict choices from our energy mix? Uh, that's it. And then how fast we can permit some things. So, you know, for example, renewable power, uh, wind and solar needs a lot of transmission line to bring the, 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 the wind and the solar to the areas where people live. So a lot of wind and solar is going to be in the Midwest. Population centers are going to be in the Northeast or in the Western states. So transmission lines, how fast can we permit and build out those transmission to bring that renewable power to market? That's that's an unknown. We have a lot of groups that are out there that protest uh, any sort of energy build out, any sort of industrial build out, uh, find ways to delay it, find ways to litigate. So improving our national permit process, not only for wind and solar, but meeting our energy needs with oil and natural gas, that's a big unknown. Um, are we finding ways to improve the process rather than restrict the process? Restricting the process is going to increase prices. Improving the process will put downward pressure on prices and uh, make energy more affordable and more reliable. So that's what we want to see. We want to see that nonpartisan energy policy. Because, you know, it doesn't matter if you're a Republican, a Democrat or an independent, energy impacts your voter mm -hmm. uh, in really large ways. So being a, a, a nonpartisan energy advocate that says we need choice, we need environmental responsibility, we need affordable energy because that's the fastest way to grow our economy is really going to be a key decision point for not only elected officials, but voters. You mentioned next year is a big vote year. So, again, doesn't matter if you're Democrat, Republican or independent, understanding sensible energy policy, understanding energy opportunity, understanding environmental opportunity, and they're not in conflict is going to be a big choice that we as voters need to really um, hold the feet, hold our political leaders feet to the fire and make sure we're electing leaders that understand that. Yeah, because there's no doubt, no matter what kind of uh, energy we're using, it, it, we're going to use a lot of it and, yep. <laughs> and more and more of it as we go down the road. Uh, hey, David, thank you so much for uh, your expertise. If people wanted to contact you guys, how can they do that? E easy. Just, jo just jump on consumerenergyalliance.org. Check us out. We've got uh, info at consumerenergyalliance.org. Feel free to send us an email and, and we'll follow up. All kinds of great articles on there as well. Thank you so much, David Holt, president of the Consumer Energy Alliance. Thanks for all your time and your expertise. Jason, really appreciate it. Thank you. You know, I didn't ask uh, David this, but I was just thinking about it uh, as as we were wrapping up. But um, you know, not having uh, gas in states like Colorado, I, and I, I know other states have looked at uh, not allowing uh, uh, natural gas in new builds, right? And so I'm just thinking about a restaurant because chefs have to cook with natural gas. I mean, they don't have to cook, but they 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 love to cook with natural gas. I like to cook, and I would not want to cook without natural gas. It's just something that I I it just it's for me, and I think really for any chef, if you ask any of them, uh, it's it's a lot easier to control temperatures with a gas stove. Uh, could we go to propane? Sure, but then we'd have to have a propane tank and the whole thing uh, to – so why why switch <laughs> from natural gas to propane? Um, it just – you know, I, I just – it Bob, that, that part is somewhat puzzling to me. And look, I'm not uh, uh, against any kind of 
uh, renewable energy. I would love to be on full, all only renewable energy. That's great uh, with natural gas for my stove. Uh, but <laughs> it's it, it's not it's not that I'm I'm pro one side or or anti another side or pro uh, ice car or anti. Uh, EVs or or the or vice versa, uh, you know whatever works works. Let the technology allow us to do things in a better way in the right time. Um, and so we had the right time for uh, big coal-fired trains that were spewing out all kinds of horrible smoke. We don't use those anymore, right? So we've moved to better technology. And that's what happens with the with with the humankind. Um, we're always looking and always working on better technology. Let it come to market, and let it um, just be. And 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 then we'll we'll be at, at we'll using dilithium crystals here before too long, just like they did on the Starship Enterprise, right? Anyway, if you have any questions, comments, concerns about that or anything else, you can always let me know uh, in the description of this show. Otherwise, thanks for being here. Thanks for listening. And until next time, I'm Jason Luber, the Traffic Guy. Be safe and as always, happy motoring.